0: Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356 9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not
1: necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money.
2: Well, good Tuesday, August morning, everybody. This
1: is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's
2: On the Money radio show. I have, glad to have Dr. Fred Gertz back in the studio today. Dr. Fred, how are you? Good to be here. I have certified financial planner professional David Rudy, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. David, good morning. Good morning. And financial advisor Daniel Rudy from Rudy Wealth Management. Daniel, thanks for uh, coming in today. Thanks for having me. I'm nice to these boys. When I'm in the studio, they'll tell you I'm mean to them at home. <laughs> Uh, You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. I think that makes perfect sense. Well, speaking of August, it's usually not a very kind month to stock investors, though it's certainly not one of the worst, but uh, I think over the last uh, 50 years, you average, which doesn't tell you all that much, but the average, it has average loss of about, or decline, I should say, of, uh, see guys, I almost said loss, uh, down about 1.4%, so that's pretty average. Uh, August and September is both. It seems like as long as I've been in this business for 33 years, it seems like they've historically been bearish as well. But there's no liquid, no reason to really uh, sell anything. You shouldn't do that. You can't anticipate it, and it's no timing tool of any sort. And, you know, just kind of looking back on history and looking at the data, the last uh, few months of the years uh, generally turned a little more positive, though it's never a lock. Um, Fred, I see the profit picture is really good. I was looking at second quarter earnings season. It's winding down. And so looking in the rearview mirror now, 84% of the S&P 500 companies are reporting and 72% have beaten Wall Street earning estimates. So I think people wonder, how can the stock market keep going up? And I think it's, to me, it's it's kind of in line with we keep having record earnings and record dividends. Yeah, I think and it's, it's a, a, second win,
1: a second win for the market because there was a... Uh, kind of lull earlier and, and profits weren't, uh, they were still good, but not necessarily expanding at the rate that people hoped. And this seems to have countered that. So uh, it's this may not be good news, but uh, it may be that uh, the economy is about as good as it's going to get. We have really, really low unemployment now, uh, uh, very little inflation, the uh, stock market is high. So uh, the only thing we lack is really strong economic growth. And that it may be that uh, two, two and a half percent is uh, uh, what we will, will maybe, hope for in the future, not maybe. three or four, as people were talking about.
2: And I want to yeah, I, I get to that yeah, because the, the, it, it strikes the, me uh, as, that, I mean, is it because a lack of will? We can't do the things that might drive that type of long-term trend, historical growth, or that so much has happened that we, it's a while before we get out of the darkness and kind of the. Yeah, uh, the gloom. Well, I think it,
1: I think it's both. There, there are certainly things we could do: uh, tax reform, things of that sort, uh, uh, reducing uh, not necessarily financial restrictions, but other kinds of uh, impediments in the economy that would probably have a positive impact. But well, there's also things that are sort of outside the uh, certainly outside the control of government, maybe outside of everyone's control, and that is the rate of innovation. So yeah. uh, uh, we need some uh, new exciting kind of development that will uh, uh, generate investment, things of that sort. Because, again, uh, uh, the uh, information uh, age kind of uh, revolution hasn't ended, but it's certainly not uh, not as new as it used to be. And uh, you only need one cell phone or one. Right, uh, not one, quite making one. the leaps. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, once you saturate the market, you can come out with new, uh, uh, like every two years with a new iPhone or something of that sort. But uh, if you have two... Uh, high-definition, big screens. You don't need three or four or five, so you need some kind of new... Unless it's new, a year old, <laughs> Fred,
2: then right. you have to get the newest. Yeah. <clears throat> I was looking at, along with those earnings, that uh, 70% of the S&P 500, the Standard & Poor's 500, those are the 500 largest companies in America. Uh, 70% top their sales estimates, so sales are driving their earnings, and then Always comes down to profitability at the same time, and uh, it, so the sales and the earnings were good enough to show a ten point one percent profit gain for the quarter that 's yeah. a pretty big quarter that 's a pretty good sign of strength, but you mentioned inflation, and I can remember in the '70s you know I can remember when well bell bottom jeans the B g s and mood rings were all pretty cool stuff, yeah. but inflation wasn 't all that uh, cool back then. Uh, it was rather hot, and uh, <clears throat> seems now some economists would almost Hope for a little more inflation. Uh, that's currently around one point four percent year over year. Uh, does that? Yeah. I know some economists are worrying that maybe the Fed has set interest. You know, they set the interest rates, and maybe they're hiking unnecessarily. There's some people saying that. Uh, how do you feel about? Uh, you think it's yeah. hard to know?
1: Well, it gives them a lot more uh, flexibility. There's not a lot of pressure to raise uh, rates right now because uh, we don't have to necessarily <laughs> quell inflation and and worldwide uh, the, the same kind of issues arise about hitting a two percent there's nothing magic about two percent We've talked about that several times uh the the price index doesn't necessarily include a lot of things so a two percent increase really probably doesn't hurt people uh very much so uh and and the one thing that uh probably is uh on the positive side is that there's not going to be a a recession caused by tightening right now uh in in the past uh A good number of recessions, post-World War II recessions, uh, were caused uh, by the Federal Reserve trying to rein things in to to control inflation, and that's not necessarily a a problem right now.
2: Especially when you look at employment, you you usually see a deterioration in that. We've seen anything but that before going into a recession. We're not seeing that. Uh, and it looks like from a pay standpoint, kind of moves along with a really low 4.3 or 4.4 unemployment rate. Yeah, and it's uh, actually
1: improving. I think the people are beating inflation now for the most part. Yeah, so. I
2: see. the uh, It's pretty gradual but still increasing at 2.5% over the past year. So that's beyond an inflationary, at least yeah. the measured inflation uh, data we get. Right. So that kind of makes sense. And to me, it strikes back, uh, though I can't prove it right here at the moment, but it seems to me one of the components of inflation historically when we go into the higher spikes in inflation is higher labor costs are a big part of it. And right. I, they're certainly not problematic now, uh, right. but they're certainly, well, Dow 22,000 now, we've uh, we've overtaken that uh, barrier for the first time. I know the White House folks are all excited about that, but uh, I think there's some caution to getting too excited one yeah. way or another over the round Yeah, out. there's always,
1: uh, people now are talking about the, uh, Western movie analogy where uh, they're on a campsite out in the middle of nowhere and things are very quiet. And they say, Well, it's, it's really too quiet now. Something right. bad's going to happen. So now, uh, when things seem to be going pretty well, there's always a fear that uh, they can't continue. So you're never safe in a financial world.
2: And one of the things that kind of happens, one of the phenomena that happens, I think, at least from my experience, is get new highs, investors get more excited, they see more headlines, and then they fear about missing out even more. Uh, and then you know the potential gains. Um, they worry about that more than worrying about the potential losses. Right.
1: There has there was a, a, a article in the Wall Street Journal though that was kind of interesting, which uh, goes counter to what we usually expect. And that was that people were actually taking money off the table for oh. rebalancing. And uh, that's a, a a situation. It's not like. You know, obviously the 20s where people were giving each other stock tips and things of that sort. So we're not in a highly speculative situation. In
2: fact, when you look at some of that data, what investors are really doing, I mean, other than financial companies buying back their own stocks, which is a big (laughs) thing. But if you look at even institutions, uh, individual investors over the last 10 years, they're still more of a, a more selling going on than buying. So that's one of those things that says, well, this certainly is not a frothy market where everybody's you know, yeah. getting into the last minute. I think that's a good point and I, it's a, certainly a contrarian point for people that think the market's overvalued and maybe doesn't have much further to go. Uh, one of the things I would look at is just the way investors are behavior, behaving. And that's one of them. And one of the thing I'll point out, at new market highs really don't tell you anything about returns going forward. I mean, I don't think People should get any more excited about Dow twenty two thousand than they were Dow twenty thousand. The stock market's up seventy five percent of the time one year after uh market highs is it you know, it's you know when you look back at the data, the same as when the market isn't at all time high. So, you know, there's a seventy five percent chance if you just had to say look at historical, uh, the best guess is three out of four chance that Compared to a year year ago from today, the market will be higher than it is
0: today. Well, and I mean just even thinking from a common sense standpoint, for the market to continue going up, just in general over very long periods of time, it's going to spend a lot of time at new market highs, at all-time market highs. It's kind of the essence. Yeah, it kind of has to happen.
2: And that's because earnings are always, or not always, are continuously on all-time highs. So higher earnings, higher dividend streams higher valuations. It only makes sense. I think sometimes we get divorced. And when we think of, you know, even calling it the stock market, which I usually rarely do with my clients. I always talk about the great companies of America and the world because it's it's a big, I think, you know, a lot of people uh, in my parents' generation and maybe even in my generation, if you say in the stock market, to them those words are the same as hearing in the casino. And it's not. It's not as if you're this you know cork bobbing in the ocean and can go anywhere the long-term you know permanent uptrend is a permanent uptrend and i think people i think people get confused in that that you know i know we're talking about the iphone 8 coming out here shortly but i i got to believe that we're already thinking about iphone 11. you know what's what's going to go on beyond that they're already way ahead of that And and you brought it up fred the innovation that's going on and continuing I think that's a pretty interesting theme. It makes me pretty confident that, you know, uh, wh- whether we go down 30% over the next year or not, over one's lifetime, depending on their time horizon, um, if people can maintain the faith, patience, and discipline to hold on to their shares of the great companies of America and the world.
1: Yeah, it's like a casino where the uh, the bettors have the margin. <laughs> I, it really I, is. Uh, so you, you expect your expected return is greater than zero, and so...
2: And there has to be a positive expected return over a lengthy time frame, otherwise, because the way I've always thought of it, and I explain it to some people, is one person's expected return is the other person's cost of capital, and capital's always going to have a price. People aren't going to provide their capital without it. Uh, so, I, think, but, I
0: think it's also kind of an important thing to understand, because I think the people who think the market's like a casino are the ones that are most likely... To think that they have to time the market right. or pick winning stocks or whatever because they have to do that to profit. And the fact of the matter is, if you just buy and hold companies, you're gonna earn a positive expected return over long periods of time. Yeah, now,
1: now the uh, the uh, it happens about every twenty years, but uh, value now is dead. And oh well, uh, yes, it, 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 it has happened. been for
2: ten years. I think yeah. value premium. But, is but if
1: you decided to get out of your value activity, you probably would end up. Three or four months regretting it, so it's really hard to. I mean, I don't. I don't like the value growth dichotomy to begin with, but uh, if you believe that, you you have to be careful about switching back and forth.
2: And a lot of smart betas, you know, is about that. There's, there's all, you know, there's some pretty good evidence that it might make sense. Um, but it's, it is interesting. And I was thinking about this. I think about crazy stuff in the middle of the night. But I think investors. I always think about how investors are behaving, and they're almost like a, a, a fans at a football game that you know. With three minutes to go, leave the stands. They've waited through a miserable game in the rain, and then they miss the miracle play at the end of the game. It's because they, you know, they go through all the pain, but they don't stay around for the gain. And that's you're right. There's there's always if you have a diversified portfolio with every major theme in the globe uh, inside that portfolio, there's always going to be two or three of those themes that you're going to hate, and two or three you're going to love, and. The way rational investors, which are not most people, would treat that is when we are when we are rebalancing, we're going to rebalance to the asset classes that are been lagging and we're going to be kind of trimming the asset classes that have been right. doing well. And but that's counterintuitive.
1: If, if, you're, if you're really passive in, in a really passive way, you don't have to worry about value and growth. You just…
2: Right. You could always default, as I said, and again, maybe these are just for educational purposes. Talk to your own advisor, but you can always default to the Vanguard Total Market Index Fund and have, if you have multi-decades to hold on to this. Uh, And and even when we're on the front end of retirement, we don't think about multi-decades, but the average, the typical uh, 62-year-old couple, one of them is going to live and answer the doorbell uh, with a nine in front of their age. And, you know, that's certainly sufficient time horizon from a historical perspective to expect that things would work out reasonably well. There's a big distribution of what that might mean. What reasonably well would that mean? 6%, 7%, 8%, uh, 10 or 12 And if we take a, even a three-decade, you know, if, we, if I look at the data and look at the worst 30-year calendar year for the broad U.S. market, it's about 8.5% a year with tons of variation. By the way, there was a global depression on the front of that 8.5%. So, It is kind of interesting. So profitability is a good profits up 19% year over year. This is as of the second quarter sales are higher, profit margins at new highs. Uh, They're not due to better oil prices as it turns out. Margins outside of energy have expanded to almost 11% a new high. So we have continued growth in employment, wages, consumption. Uh, That all to me Fred tells us financial results should be improving. As they in fact have done. In other words, if unemployment's low and if cons- these people are now, uh, everybody—not everybody—more people have jobs, they have more money to spend, they have more money to consume. Uh, it would strike me that more people working, Fred, would drive consumption higher. It just seems like they would go hand in hand.
1: Sure, uh, but again, we always talk about the unpredictability. But certainly, in the long run, that's, that's
2: well, of course. And, and it, but just from a big, big picture theme here, uh, it. It would be hard to make a case for a recession, though anything's right. possible. But it certainly doesn't have any of the classic signs. So, yeah. and since the stock market is a discounting mechanism,
1: discounting what they expect to happen. In yeah. the future. it's kind of strange how problems recede into the background. Uh, no one's talking about Greece anymore.
2: It's like it never happened.
1: Yeah, right. And Southern Europe is still have they still have their problems, but it's not uh, on the edge of a of a precipice anymore. But those know.
2: headlines kept a lot of people on the yeah. sideline. Yeah. And those headlines were replaced by other negative headlines, the apocalypse du jour, that every one of them intuitively makes sense. Yeah. And every, every one of them will give you really a pretty good reason from an intu- intuition standpoint to get on the sidelines and stay on the sidelines. I, ta- I go back to April of 2009 if somebody would have told you that for the next four years I can guarantee you unemployment won't go below 7% and economic yeah. growth won't be above 2% you'd probably stay on the sidelines and you would have missed a tripling yeah. of the broad U.S. market. So it, it's interesting. It seems like the dollar's behaving. Uh, was, it was rising for a bit. Uh, you know, rising dollars. Can you explain to people,
1: Fred, why rising dollars hurts sales for corporate America? Well, it means that uh, if a foreigner wants to buy something from uh, the United States, it takes more of their Uh, whatever the currency is, euros or yens or uh, whatever it is, to buy uh, American dollars to buy the goods, so it makes it more difficult for Americans to uh, export. It's more expensive for foreigners to uh, travel here, and likewise it's less expensive for us, so it has an impact. But the the problem there is that uh, it's a pretty uh, dangerous uh, situation if you try to manipulate the currency in your favor. So, for example, trying to... uh, uh, lower the value of the dollar to expand exports is probably not a very very good long-term kind of strategy. So I always view the uh, the exchange rate as more of a price, and prices have a kind of life of their own. And it's uh, uh, half the time we worry about the the, the dollar being not, not strong enough, the other half we, There's conflicting we're
2: fact, signals constantly. You yeah. hear two analysts, one of them's
1: worried about a dollar rising, and the other's worried about a weak dollar. Right. So I typically, unless it's some uh, evidence of some... Uh, Really serious kind of uh, problem like Argentina or something. That's why I don't really worry very much about the the dollar. Didn't we spend
2: mo- the majority of the last century, so nineteen hundreds, uh, with a, basically a trade deficit and probably, sp- right. perhaps even I don't know whether we had a weak dollar period. We had a, we had a fluctuating dollar, but people yep. worry about these trade deficits and things. And right. yet I think. Well, we came out of the last century as the world's economic yeah.
1: superpower, and we had a trade deficit. Oh, well, of the, the reason time. So is, is another that, thing people yeah, worry the, the, about. Uh, it's a again, you can uh, spin it either way, but one one uh, way of talking about it is the fact that people have a lot of confidence in the United States; who are willing to invest here and have their money parked here. Which and
2: uh, that's to clearly else. the case right now, isn't it? Right, if we have a two, it almost always two is. two you know low twos percent for a ten-year yeah. Treasury note for our treasury bills paying almost nothing, right. and the international community steps up to buy them over and over at, at, at trillions of dollars of our at, at a very low yield. To me, is a confidence story. Yeah. Well, even I mean, in, the,
1: in the depth of the uh, financial crisis, the uh, United States was still a place to, to be in terms of safety.
2: Well, we certainly know how to pull out all the emergency stops now, <laughs> yeah. don't we? As yeah. opposed to maybe in the late 20s or early 30s. Uh, guys, I want to talk about the biggest money mistakes millennials make. Fred, you can weigh in on this. Just because you and I aren't millennials, <laughs> yeah. we can still. But I recently saw a list of the biggest money mistakes millennials make, which are the young folks, 20s, thirties, somethings Would that be fair enough to say, guys? The, what, yeah, I don't know the
0: exact definition, but I I'm I'm not think sure. I I know there is to, one. But I think, I I think yeah, of it I
2: as uh, 20s, 30s, somethings, maybe low 40s, but I think 20s and 30s. Uh, since I uh, have a couple millennials in a room here, I wanted to, get their thoughts on a couple of mistakes one that stuck out to me uh, it, it, in one form or another you know it's translated differently as missing out on the great returns of the broad US market or the or the, or the or the well as I say it the great companies the returns from the great companies of America and the world um, what, what's your guys take on that one I think
3: definitely starting out uh, a lot of it is just a matter of actually taking the steps to get into the market because it's one thing to know, yeah, I needed to invest, but to actually go out, open your accounts, and actually invest, that's step one. And I know that sounds really simple, but, I mean, everyone has procrastinated before. And you, so it's they, better to invest today than tomorrow when we're as young as we are.
2: But then some of them, don't they pick the wrong investment scheme? Uh, you know, here I have a 22-year-old or a 25-year-old that's in their first 401k plan, and they have to put their – 50 or $100 a month, uh, somewhere, uh, when we look at the data, a lot of them are putting it in a good portion of their money in bonds, as opposed to the great companies of America and the world. I mean, isn't that a big mistake?
3: Yeah, and I mean, my suggestion would be obviously 100% stock portfolio, being as young as we are, because when you really think about what this money is for, it's for retirement. We got 40 years of work to be had, and we're going to be investing constantly throughout that whole time, so we don't really have to worry about volatility because you're investing during those market declines, so you're getting cheaper prices. So declines when you're young, it's not a terrible thing. Is that because, because you're be afraid of volatility?
2: Do you think there just the education needs to be better that people need to, young people included, need to recognize that there are consequences to our choices of asset allocation in our four hundred one k plan. That is. Yes, if you want to classify the ABC, you know, stock fund as aggressive, well, naturally who most people don't want to think in terms of being aggressive. When we think of aggressive, that's almost a bad word. You know, when I think of aggressive people, those are not people I want to be around typically. Uh and it it strikes me that if somebody would explain to them, look, if you keep doing what you're doing, here's what you're likely to end up with versus putting maybe for the next 30 years every new dollar contribution into the great companies of america i mean if someone just showed them the sheer uh divide between those two numbers a mainly bond portfolio versus a mainly stock portfolio it might get their attention
0: yeah i think one of the biggest issues is a lot of people don't even know the difference between a stock and a bond i mean it sounds what to expect it sounds really simple and i'm sure the listeners of this show understand the differences but it's like People coming out of college a lot of times have zero financial knowledge or like training or education, and it's not that they're making decisions because they're afraid of being aggressive or conservative. It's they have no idea what they're investing in. I mean, they have this list of mutual funds in their 401k, and they say like, "Well, this is
2: all foreign to me. I have no idea what to choose." And Fred, you've been on institutional boards, or not no no particular one, just in general observation. It could probably be true that while there's maybe more knowledge, they know the difference between stock and bonds. Maybe from a from a complete expectations, they, they may not be all that much better.
1: No, I think yeah, and things have changed though. Uh, back uh, thirty or forty years ago, a lot of pension funds were totally in bonds and getting virtually no returns. So it was a big uh, kind of revolution to move into equity, and uh, so again. Uh, there's obviously risk involved, but over the long term, the risk is pretty pretty small compared to the, uh, the alternatives. Yeah,
2: I mean, if you just look at, especially with these really long time horizons, and I, look, I consider a 62-year-old couple still having a rather lengthy uh, time horizon can withstand a lot of fluctuation, if, if, mm-hmm. if they require fluctuation. Uh, would you explain it to a friend of yours that, look, you're not done buying yet? Why would you want prices to go up? Inevitably, they're going to go higher than you could imagine, and do you just explain to them that look, you, whoever ends, I always like to think of it this way, I don't know if you guys talk to your, I know your friends ask you 401K questions, but I always found it useful to say, look, whoever ends up with the most shares of stock mutual funds by age 60 or so gets the best lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And when they're down 30% or 40% temporarily, you're basically, you have you have brain power on autopilot, you're backing up the truck and loading in, loading up on more shares and whoever ends up with the most shares wins. What do you say when your friends? Do they, do they ask you what to do with their 401ks? I mean, kind of what's that conversation like?
0: Yeah, I mean, usually I, I start out explaining some really basic stuff, and then I, I just tell them, send over a list of your mutual funds, and I'll usually put together a portfolio, but then explain kind of the thought process behind it and explain, here's what I did and why, and here's what you can expect. And I think the expectations are really important because it's been my experience People aren't concerned. Like at our age, I think people, once you explain to them, hey, this is going to be a volatile portfolio, but the nature of a 401k is it's for your retirement. You're not pulling money out. It can't hurt you. People go, okay, that makes sense. And then they do it. I I think the big issue, like I said before, is just people have no idea how to do
2: that on their own without someone kind of
0: explaining it to them.
2: And do you think people understand the difference between fluctuation and risk?
0: I don't. I don't think so. Most people don't. I mean, if you, it's just poor terminology, too. I mean, it's probably our fault or the, the financial industry's fault that we use risk as a synonymous term with volatility or standard deviation. So, of course, when people hear that a million times throughout their lifetime, oh, the risk of your portfolio right. used interchangeably with the fluctuation of your portfolio, well, it gets drilled into your head that those two things are the same. When really there's a whole lot of other risks
2: to take into consideration. I think if Fred, I just think because I, I, it's yeah. a, to me the, the one of the biggest, uh, you know, syndromes I see are people confusing risk or right. loss with fluctuation. And I, I, I think if, if people, I'm guessing, said when you look at your five four oh one k model choices, and one of them's aggressive, you know, yeah. it has the most risk. Well, who right. wants to step up to take the most risk? But wouldn't it make more sense to say? oh, that portfolio has the highest expected return. Yeah. Doesn't mean it will be the one with the highest expected return, but from an historical perspective, if there's, you know, if the future's anything, even if it's, right. you know, a fraction, you know, a good fraction of it, um, but it's going to fluctuate the most. Yeah. Also,
1: the the time period's very important. Um, most people don't really care about the fluctuations within a year, but you would care about them over 10 or 20 or 30 years, so presumably... Uh, with uh, the growth, we expect the risk over a long term is much less. You could still call it risk, but it's much lower over a long period rather than a short period.
2: Yeah, I guess if we're going to use the word risk, I'd say, yeah, there's a risk your portfolio will decline more than that portfolio temporarily. But, but,
1: but 10 years from, uh, if you say over the next, where we will be 10 years from now, the risk is probably smaller. With
2: uh, It declines kind uh, of with the passing of time. Uh, no, I mean, but, but
1: if you compare equities versus uh, uh Bonds over a 20-year period, uh, the risk of of equity being lower than bonds is pretty pretty small. Yeah, it, it,
2: that, I would say from that, that's absolutely true. It's possible. Uh, it's it certainly we've seen some rather lengthy periods, 1965 or six to 1982, Treasury bills outperformed the broad U.S. stock market. Not a global portfolio, but just if you look at the broad U.S. market, that would be true. Um, one of the other key mistakes millennials make is a lack of emergency fund. What do what you guys take on that? Well.
0: I think this actually in some ways goes hand in hand with and I don't um, think it's just millennials with portfolio like. allocation in that I think having adequate money just sitting there in savings, it gives you the ability and the peace of mind to be able to have your long-term assets invested in 100% equities and not worry if they go down 50% like they did in 2008 or you know somewhere around there. Having that, that emergency fund allows you to have your long-term assets invested that quote, aggressively. Um, but most people don't do it. The, there's a lot of rule of thumb l- rules of thumb, but I don't know that there's any one answer. But um, the, Conceptually, the one who you should ha- have a
2: lar- longer one versus a shorter one, or a smaller
0: one versus a larger So if you think, like, the more stable your job is, the less important an emergency fund is, but if you're in an industry where you have no idea you could be fired tomorrow or your income could be cut drastically uh, tomorrow then you're going to want more of an emergency fund to help you kind of ride out those those down periods. Um, so that's really kind of, there's no right or wrong. And then the other thing, this isn't truly an emergency fund, but I think, you know, Daniel mentioned having your money invested 100% equity. I think the exception to that is money that you will need, even if it's not a, quote, emergency fund. Right. Maybe you know you need money in the next five years or so. You know, we were talking about this yesterday. Daniel's saying, well, eventually I'm going to want to buy a house. Right. Maybe I should be saving a little bit more in my taxable account and putting it more in like short term fixed sure. income or maybe just put it in cash because. <clears> Any, you m- anything
2: know. you're going to need the money in three or four years, uh, maybe even five, arguably doesn't belong in the stock market. I mean, I think we would all agree with that. Yep. And majority of people, uh, even in America, not just millennials, I think majority of people do not have an emergency fund.
0: Yeah, I mean that. I I don't know the exact statistics, but that's kind of you. Kind of hear well, variations somewhere inside. around
2: one in four uh, have no emergency savings. That's or, that's pretty good. Or
0: they have you know credit card debt, which is almost like the opposite of an emergency fund. You know, you have this this outstanding liability with high interest. Um, and then so, what do
2: you where do you see was one of the other ones listed? Were bad spending habits? Uh, what do you what are you guys seeing from your peers?
3: actually from my peers I guess I can brag on them a little bit but we're all very pretty good savers um I think one of the things I we were actually I was in DC this weekend so we we're coming back on Sunday and I asked how much you, are you guys saving in the 401k and all of them answered the question pretty well but the main thing is just lifestyle creep so we're all young so So what's lifestyle creep? Lifestyle creep is pretty much when you get a raise right? you want to spend more you go oh now i got all this extra money extra right and you want to spend more of it so then all of a sudden you have this lifestyle that you require a lot more even in retirement so you go well now i'm making eighty thousand, and i was making 70 so well now in retirement most likely i'll need 80 so you need to start saving more when you start making more it is
0: really the moral of the story Mm -hmm. I know this is an article about millennials, but I actually okay. I think this is almost more of an issue for people in their 30s and 40s. You start having kids, you start right. earning higher incomes usually around that time than, you know, people in their young, lower 20s really just aren't making that much to even have the ability to let their lifestyle creep up, but I think it's really easy to get in that phase of life, the 30s, 40s, you're having kids, get caught up in the you know, keeping up with the Joneses and trying to, you know, you buy a bigger house so that all your kids have their own room or whatever it may be, you buy a nicer car.
2: And that's basically like, lifestyle creep. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're, you're maybe at your highest spending, your highest earnings, but you also now suddenly at your highest spending pattern as well. So when you do retire, it takes a lot more money to show up to meet that lifestyle. And because of that lifestyle, you're probably not, Saving as much as you would save if you were more frugal. And that's kind of this double whammy that I see that lands on a lot of people. It seems like to me, my experience with dealing with people walking in my office, which we're retirement specialists. So most people walking in our office, the vast majority are about to retire or are retired. And the ones that it's clear to me, the ones that lived a reasonably frugal life saved more. And the fact that they have more savings in a frugal life means they have more options at a younger age and I I always we always think about savings component are we saving enough as our asset allocation but I think that lifestyle creep is every bit as important and you guys have so many more tools we have so many more tools today to keep track of our lifestyle spending what are some what tools do you guys use or your friends using so
3: I like to use mint.com it's really easy to use
2: and I, It's I, free, and it's free, so that's really nice. Um, what do you do? You, you you log in, you get a password, and then you, you can add all you can aggregate all your outside investment accounts and bank accounts and credit cards, et cetera. Right, and then they're updated each day. Yeah, and they'll actually categorize your spending. So will say, so that's hey, key.
3: you spent X amount on gas, you spent this on food or dining, and then. You can kinda look back each month. I'd recommend each month and say, Oh, it looks like I spent a lot eating out. And can then I, I f- cut that back. You know, and or, you can do
2: some budgeting on it as well. Yeah. So you it can tells do you if you're over budget. So.
3: I think um another thing which we weren't going to talk about today, but a little bit with budgeting is that I think people get a little too detailed and it right. it kinda overwhelms them. But I think what you should do is kind of do the pay your first thing. It's like Here's much. Here's how much I can reasonably save. Right. So pay yourself first. Pay yourself first, and then go. Okay, I'm going to put that over there at the beginning of the month. Now the rest I have to spend. Right. Who cares if you spend it here or there? Just know that you're staying within, you know your your means.
2: Fred, I haven't seen many people that didn't yeah. pay themselves first that got a that had a lot of options in their right. late fifties or early sixties when it comes to retirement. Has that been your experience? Just, um, just I'm talking to it. people.
1: I'm not sure. Uh, Maybe people are just more, some are more frugal. I don't think I ever thought about paying myself first, but I always ended up paying myself eventually. (laughs) So I'm not sure which it, uh, which it is, but again, it's a good, it's a good strategy, kind of behavioral strategy to make yourself uh, move in that direction and looking at things again. uh, Uh, do you really need the? We, we talked about the $5. Maybe it's not $5 lot right. anymore. Do you need the. Uh, Seven. You need the uh, <laughs> personal trainer. Right. Uh, things like that. There are probably things that people think are necessities that maybe aren't or you could do without for five years or so. And again, we haven't talked about compound interest, but uh, saving it early is really the, the way to well, go. Well, let's
2: talk about that because compound interest, maybe that's one of the most important yeah. factors for, especially people when they're younger guys. Uh, you, you, you know maybe you can explain the rule of seventy two if you want, but the, I, the when you look at when I think of the broad u s. stock market it's it's had a compounded annual growth rate of around 10 percent. It's fair enough, rounded, and that's with dividends reinvested and think about that: if you earn a 10 percent return over a long period of time, you're on average you're going to double your money every seven years. Now it's on average, it's not every seven, but on average that's what would occur. So I try to tell young people, look, if you start in your 20s versus your 40s, you're going to miss maybe two of those okay. doubles. And the, the, the last one or two doubles, you know, when you're in your 50s and then 60s and you see your money double, that's when it gets your attention. And what the millennials are missing is there they're might be missing by not investing early is how do you guys deal with that compound return? Do you, know, you guys ever even talk to your friends about it? Did people get it? About the, Do people understand in general from your experience, just talking to your peers, the power of what Fred just brought up of compound interest and, and how the benefits of starting early? I think most
0: people get the concept because people do talk about it so much. But I think a lot of times they don't realize how big of a difference small changes in percentages and return can, how big of a difference they can make over your lifetime. So that gets back to having the right allocation and if you're in a 100% stock portfolio and, say, you have a 10% annualized return over your lifetime, right. you, know, you double every seven years. If you have a 5% return,
2: you double every 14 years. That makes a big, big difference. Right. You're going to miss one or two doubles. Right. Just from an asset allocation standpoint. So, it, you, so you can really, when you, when I hear you saying that, when you really think about the compounding of these mistakes, two of them together, not starting early, you miss one or two doublings, potentially. And with the wrong asset class, or the wrong uh, asset allocation strategy, one that's theoretically more conservative, has a lower expected return, you could miss another one or two doubling of your money. Those things really compound. Yeah,
1: sometimes I look at old investments, and they'll be five or ten times what I put in. I think it I must have been a really great investment choice. and go back and find out the annual rate of return, and it wasn't. It's was <laughs> pretty much what everybody got. Yeah, it was just there a long yeah. time.
2: And we've seen that um, with some clients in their 80s that will have stocks that they bought in the 40s, 50s. They'll have $3,000 or 6000 of total. They invested over a period of years. And we've just seen this recently. And next thing you know, it's worth three hundred and fifty dollars or $400,000. It's Almost mind-boggling. Then, like you said, you go back and said, "Well, I pretty much got an average return, yeah, for just for being a stock, really." And it's that this is really powerful. Not only for just millennials, that your your expected return and your allocation strategy matters, whether you're in pre-retirement or in retirement. They have consequences, and you need to understand. You choose the one that you're most comfortable with, the one that gives you the outcome that you want. But I think it's important to to understand the relationship about that asset allocation even how much in stocks versus bonds that's what i mean by that uh and and just how important that is um how about knowing retirement plan options you see in the millennial friends of yours understanding them very well uh it kind of surprises me that they wouldn't know it but that's that was one of the I could see where confusion would be
0: like, well, what's the difference between a traditional IRA and a Roth? And even if they understand that, it's like, well, which one do I do? Like, how would just an average, everyday person know how to make that decision? So they have no idea. Um, Or maybe not even realizing uh, how their employer match works, you know, and maybe they're not contributing enough to
2: even get just, yeah, the free money that the employer is offering them. So they should understand, okay, how does the matching work? Because I want to make sure at a minimum I'm going to put enough in to get every dollar of the match that's available. Um, there are It surprises me uh, how many people don't do that. And that is literally leaving free money on the table. Yeah, and
0: then i oh, this is more
2: of an obscure one, but I
0: know of like someone who they could buy their own employer stock at a discount, and that was one of their benefits and what he did is he would buy the stock and then immediately sell it and diversify but he could sell it at the full price and immediately get that like 15%
2: step up so it's like you just want to be aware of the opportunities that are provided to you and would would not asking help that would probably be another one of the the problems that people have because maybe if, if they're not asking the questions then they don't know the answers they don't if they don't ask what the, how the match works uh so it would strike me that you know, the, one of the first things you need to do is start asking good questions.
1: We have to ask also the, before that. You have to ask who you who do you ask. Uh, you might uh, be sold an insurance policy or something of like that yeah. sort. Yeah. well, yeah. I'm,
2: I'm thinking. I guess I'm thinking. Uh, I'm going. I, I guess I narrowed my focus at like at the company, the 401k. Um, but you're right. Outside of that, you know, if, if young people, I can't think of. Probably more important for a millennial to have a good financial advisor than a retiree. Uh, I mean, there's a lot at stake for both of them, but think of the decisions that one makes in their 20s or early 30s or even 40s that have an impact over the next four, five, or six decades. You buy, because one of the things millennials do, just like non-millennials do, is they buy depreciating assets. And I think there's this idea that just because they can pay for something means that they can afford it. And when I think of millennials and your friends, guys, I think of, well, how much house should I buy? Well, I don't know. Is it, should you buy what you could pay for or, or figure out what you could really afford realistically that's prudent that allows you to also do your savings? What kind of mortgage do you get? Do I get a fixed mortgage? Do I get a 15-year, 30? Do I get a variable rate mortgage? You can make mistakes there. Uh, baby comes along. Well, they tell you you need a policy on your child. Well, probably don't, but they're certainly going to tell you you need a policy on yourself now, and it's, well, what type of insurance do I buy? Do I buy term, which is one I always recommend, uh, or do I buy whole life or ordinary life, which I never recommend? So you could compound for a young person. I can't think of a more useful thing than good financial advice from from a person that, maybe ideally doesn't sell products or have a conflict of selling products and getting commission. Not that they can't do a good job and be honorable to do that, but it just eliminates that even concern. Um, uh, do you guys agree with me on that? I guess you have to. I'm your boss, but do you, I, what's your yeah, take but on it? I, is that, is I, that maybe not so important?
0: No, I think it's really important, but I think that the issue is, again, finding like a fee-only advisor that will actually work with people who don't have a significant lump sum of assets. You know, most advisors are still asset-based.
2: So where would you suggest they go? Is that the X Y i Y? I'd Google it, yeah. And just, just look for... What's the of,
0: network? It's called XY Planning Network. Yeah, so... Or you find an advisor who will do hourly planning work and just pay them, you know, maybe you end up paying them $1,000 for, you know, five hours of work or whatever it might be. It's like, that's going to be money well spent because getting those, all of those things
2: right will be worth multiples of that thousand dollars that you spent right so if they're if they can't find one in town then get on the google xy planning network and you could probably it may not be in your area but it, it doesn't need to be in your area for you to get a lot of really good non-conflicted advice at least non-conflicted from the standpoint of product sales you, there's plenty of them out there um because there's a lot of firms that just don't you know we're, we're retirement specialists so uh, it's not that we don't like millennials. It's just that's we like to specialize hmm. in one area. There's plenty to know just about everything. All things retirement. I, I have a question. Yeah, I, go ahead. I'm not sure it's. Uh,
1: I know the answer, but what about a robo advisor to someone starting uh, small?
2: I think uh, that can. I'll t- I'll go first. I think that's a great answer for someone who just trying to figure out, you know, just a good investment scheme, a good, in, you know, a good low priced, fair, diversified. I think it answers. Where can I go to have a good investing experience? But most of them, from my experience, aren't as detailed in the planning side as you might need from a financial advisor that really gets your temperament and your DNA. Would you guys agree with that?
0: Yeah, like I I don't foresee them helping you with life. And I think of like betterment, you know, that's focused on your portfolio. And then the other thing that I think is probably suboptimal about a lot of them is like the maximum they'll go up to is 90% equity. Well, it's like, well, that's kind of dumb for a 25 year old. Right. You know, I, I think they ha- it's, it's probably better than what people would do on their own, but it's probably not as good as if you could find a good advisor.
2: So I think if we summarize that kind of category of mistakes millennials make, one of the big ones is what most investors, one of the roots of the problem is it's just not a lot of knowledge. And there's so much conflicting advice going on back and forth. I think that clouds the ability to gain the knowledge because people are bright. Uh, it's not that they're not capable of it, uh, and and it's just this lack of knowledge. If there's any – after 33 years, Fred and guys, if I would say there's one thing that has not changed, I just don't think in, investors are as, are any more knowledgeable today than they were in 1984 when I started in this business.
1: And they're not – they're just as There's temper, more options. Just as temperamental probably. Uh, <laughs> Every temperament. bit is temperamental because, because I think
2: that's millions of years of DNA, you know, yeah. uh, f- f- you know flight or flight. Uh, uh, you know and, and now we have more information
0: bombarding, bombarding and, us yeah. than in the past you know at least in the past you had to read stuff in the newspaper now I
1: mean, you get to yeah well there's silly stuff too i mean it wasn't as silly as i'm going to make it but uh, uh they, the article was uh in a bear market uh buy and hold doesn't work but in another sure. market but if you knew exactly when the bear markets were in advance and when the uh, uh, bull markets were. That'd be a good strategy. Uh, buy it. Buy Eloquent. It. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. But, but you don't know when whether a ten percent uh, downturn is the end of a of a minor correction yeah. or the beginning of a huge thing. So those kind of things don't really help much in terms and of that's. Your, that's
2: what's, what's interesting about it too, Fred, because that is common. It comes out. They drag out every time, right? It's the same old story in a new suit. Uh, it's gets that all, also gets back to this knowledge thing. I mean, if people. We'll go to the right places and gain the knowledge. And there's some series of good books on that. Uh, we'll talk about those maybe next show. You, you, If you had the knowledge, you would understand that trying to time the markets, you can't do it on a consistent basis. Or it, it, let's put it this way. The odds of you doing it or anybody doing it on a consistent basis are so bad that you wouldn't want to do it. It's going to detract from returns and won't add to it. But yet so in in, in the fact that it's irrelevant you know if if the stock market does anything near what it's done historically speaking uh the fluctuation becomes irrelevant it just means in fact it's not it's not just irrelevant in order to get it's my view in order to get the premium returns of the great companies of america and the world of return to investors i think it requires uh immense fluctuation uh because if there wasn't a lot of unpredictability, then companies could pay less for money, which means investors would expect less return. It's To me, it's that simple. It's just we need to embrace it, but it's a knowledge issue. And a good financial advisor can be your surrogate to the knowledge, and they can educate you uh, to to a point where and basically a good advisor can give you a means to make really good decisions they don't have to make the decision for you they just give you a basis for it and i think that's probably one of the healthier ways to think about it i don't you know I don't know what you guys weigh in on that well finally we got a few minutes left how much does it take to, how much do you have to save to be a millionaire so for all these youngins out there well key starting young i know that uh seems like a big task when you say wow i need to have a million dollars uh if they know how easy, if young people knew how easy it was, it's not simple, how easy it is for a million. So uh, CNBC did a study, or NerdWallet did a study, and they created a chart uh, A chart at starting at age 22, $0 invested. They looked at a 6% average annual investment return and how much it would take to be a millionaire by 67. So here's what a 20-year-old would have to do. If they earn 40000 a year, they'd need to save I'm just going to round it to 11% of each paycheck. If they earned $60,000, they would have to save 7.2% of each paycheck, and so on. You can see at you know, 80000 like now you're in the top 10% of millennials if, in Illinois. If you're making $80,000, you'd have to save 5.5%. So half of what, I'm going to make sense. I mean, it's twice the, it makes perfect sense. It's, it's linear at that point. Um, but that's at a 6% expected return. Now think about this there's never been a 30-year period at least since the early 1900s so the data going back there's data that goes back further but it's just not as clean in my opinion we've the lowest 30-year return for the broad u.s market was eight and a half percent doesn't mean it couldn't be lower so you know to to use a six percent return i think is really conservative so you can say if you're earning forty thousand dollars as a 22 year old first of all you're doing pretty well I suspect that you don't have to save as much as 11%. I'm not telling you I'm not telling you to not do that. Um, but I suspect if you saved 6 or 7% and held the broad US market uh and used the expected return as the, the historical return as the expected return, you'd have to say it's much less daunting.
0: Well, 6% might be almost close to the inflation-adjusted real return of a well, stock that, portfolio. So this would almost if you looked at it like that, you could Might say, say a million dollars in real terms. In today's dollars, yeah. Oh, I didn't sure. talk about it, David. Yeah, the
1: scary thing, though, is uh, a million may not be enough. Uh, I know. Well,
2: no, but you know. that's why Dave's <laughs> Dave saying, you know what, maybe I think 6% for a stock portfolio is too yeah. low of an expected return. It would be more like the expected return net of inflation. In fact, it would be.
1: Yeah, but A million dollars is a huge amount of money uh, if you're going out to do something. But if you're looking at a 40-year retirement period uh, – I agree. That's
0: why it's like, you know, it's kind of funny they show forty thousand dollars of income to one hundred and twenty thousand, but they're all shooting for that same million dollar target. Yeah. It's like well if you need one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of income, a million dollar portfolio is not gonna get you there. <laughs> well that's an
2: interesting observation. <laughs> uh one final thing, we are going to be holding another seminar on retirement planning. We ended up with another full house at the last one. Uh, so we're going to go over the topic of retirement planning and retirement readiness we're going to do this on wednesday september 13th from 6 30 to 8 pm at our rudy wealth learning center on 25 at 2502 galen drive in this event the rudy wealth management team will walk you through the challenges facing those planning for retirement the different decisions you have to make and how to approach them we're going to cover the reasonable expectations this is a big one for things like withdrawal rates and ultimately help you decide if you're retirement ready. Um, and, and David, I, I'm going to sing the praises of David here. This is by far his best seminar. David primarily does it. Uh, they must have taught you something really well at Dimensional Fund Advisors because we, got a, we get a lot of good feedback, and it continues to fill up. You can sign up by going online at our seminars page on our website at rudywealth.com or by giving us a call at 356-356. 1400 again that's wednesday september 13th 6 30 to 8 p.m at rudy wealth learning center it's a retirement planning and retirement readiness workshop uh guys we have about a minute and and again just get online uh, rudywealth.com or 356 um you know in the last minute fred um Illinois, I guess we're going to get this SB one the school thing fixed.
1: I think it'll get fixed one way or another. Uh, I think the, kids are going to school. The schools are going to open. Um, my thought about that is that uh, everyone gets more. It's really a fight over who gets the most. So there's a old cartoon about Hagar, They're horrible, and they said, "What's your model?" And the model is, uh, "They have it, I want it." <laughs> and, and so it seems to me the two sides are just fighting over uh, how much of the of the pie they get and It's important to particularly districts, but I think it's going to come out with the schools opening on time.
2: Okay, well, that's a good note. Uh, Bad way to get there, but a good note. So, uh, guys, thanks for joining me today. We'll be back in two weeks for another Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for listening.
0: Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.